You are listening to the Balmetto State Podcast, where we have conversations about all things basketball with a South Carolina flavor. Let's get started and tip off this episode with your host, the head basketball coach at Westwood High School, John Combs. Welcome to the podcast today. Today, we're thankful to have Jesse Washington on the show. Jesse is a senior writer for the ESPN's Undefeated and also co-author of the book, I Came as a Shadow, an autobiography of Coach John Thompson. Jesse, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, John. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's start off with some hard-hitting questions. Um, And I say that tongue-in-cheek. Did (laughs) did you intentionally wear Adidas shoes when you were being interviewed by the Thompson family, knowing that they were a Nike family? No, I didn't really. I was just, uh, you know, I just put them on. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a huge sneaker guy, but I have a few pair and I like them. And uh, I just threw them on and I only really realized it later. I think I was probably more concerned, actually, now that I think about it. I feel like you shouldn't really mix and match brands in one outfit. And I had on a white polo shirt and it was actually a shirt that I used when I was like helping out coaching some of my son's AAU teams. And he played on the Adidas circuit. So I had a, you know, an Adidas polo on. So I said, oh, I can't wear Nikes with an Adidas polo. So I just put it on the Nikes on my feet, just thinking that way and not thinking that they were Nike's family. Well, I think that that was a great story uh, that you've, you've told on, on different podcasts and other things. Now, did you wear Nikes after that or did you just you, you were just being you the whole entire time with him? I was just being me. And just to refresh your listeners, you know, when I first met Coach Thompson, he invited me to his house to sort of interview me. And he was there with his son. John the third and his daughter Tiffany. And at one point they said, why'd you wear Adidas over here? You know, we're a Nike family. And I just looked at him and said, Hey, I'm size 13. So you can hook a brother up whenever you want, you know, but they were just testing me, feeling me out to see what kind of guy I was and, and how I would flow in different situations. And uh, apparently I passed the test because I did get the gig. Well, Jesse, I, after reading your book uh, and it's, it's, fascinating to me the power that Twitter has in many cases. It was sometime during my basketball season. I don't read a lot of books during the season, but I, I read a tweet from someone that called your book a must read. And, and it's a person that I, I follow, but I haven't had much interaction with. And I've always had great respect for Coach Thompson, but I'll be honest, I didn't know, I didn't know as much about him as I thought maybe that I knew about him. So I, I, I read your book and I then after wanted to uh, describe it on Twitter, I had the hardest time in a one Twitter, one tweet to describe the book. How would you describe uh, I came as a shadow? Man, I really like that question because it's a hard one. and I don't have a quick answer ready. I would describe it as a book about life and education and basketball in that order, you know, and coach Thompson told me in that first meeting, before I even got the job, listen, I don't want to write a book about basketball. And that really struck with, you know, it really struck me deeply because as much as I love the game of basketball and have been consumed with it to sometimes an unhealthy degree over the course of my life, you know, we have to really use it for more important things. And if all it is is about glory and getting accolades, or even if all it is is about, you know, uh, going to the next level and the grind and all these words that we put on basketball these days. There has to be more to it than that. We have to use it for the greater good and for higher aspirations. And so, you know, that's what his book is about. His book is about the greater good and higher, higher aspirations 
for us as as human beings and as people and as black people too but uh coach thompson had a deep love for what basketball could do for us collectively no matter what color we are yeah when i was trying to describe the book i didn't want to call it just an autobiography because i do think there are people out there that just for whatever reason say they don't like autobiographies but it i didn't want to call it a basketball book either i didn't want to it was so much to so many people because i didn't want to limit it in any way it's there is so much good history it, it causes you to think it has caused me to laugh, especially um, maybe talk a little bit about this on coaches. Uh, he, he referred to how to talk to certain people and his use of uh, profanity at times <laughs> about getting off the desk. Um, now, there's certain things I can't say, but I, I laughed like really hard at that point. Man, you know, Coach Thompson, uh, and I'm going to assume that there's a several generations of folks that weren't really familiar with him and his impact and his importance to the game. And People are used to seeing black coaches now, although there's still not a huge amount of them, but there's far more than when Coach Thompson came around. And so when he came around, he was a six foot ten, dark skinned, very loud, very opinionated, often profane black man. His all black teams played extremely hard and aggressively and people were just scared. Let's just say it plainly. They were scared. They should not have been scared. It wasn't fair to be scared, but they were. And so... Um, to, to hear Coach Thompson shed a different light on who he really was, he was a funny guy. And when we were alert, working on this book, I had so many good laughs with him. We laughed about so many things. And yeah, one of them was his story about how he started using profanity. And Coach Thompson says in his book, he was a mama's boy, which was another surprise because, you know, he didn't give that appearance. And he said, my mom would have killed me if I used profanity. But when I started as a youth counselor, before he became a basketball coach, he was in his probably mid to late 20s after he got done playing for Red Arbacks, famous dynasty Boston Celtics. He was just a youth counselor working with troubled kids. And he said, some of these kids, the only way I could get to, through to them was profanity. And he said, if I can't t- say, excuse me, would you please remove yourself from that desk? <laughs> get off that desk, blankety blanker. <laughs> and that mf was his favorite profanity. He used it eloquently, humorously, aggressively, and every other way in between. So, yeah, we had plenty of laughs while we were doing that book, and that was definitely one of them when he talked about how he first started using that word. When I've listened to you on other podcasts, it was interesting to hear some other former players and people that were around him that said they felt accepted by him when he was called when they were called a blankety blanker or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I sure did. You know, and, and his daughter told me very early. Uh, his daughter, Tiffany, said, yeah, you know, you know that you're he, he will have accepted you when he curses you out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Until then, he's still on his best behavior. Um, she said he was trying to impress me, which was I found very interesting and somewhat hard to believe. But I think it was more that he was trying to impress his readers. And he was very conscious of the fact that this book would live on you know forever after he was gone and that it was you know it would really serve in a lot of ways to be the last word on many things and so i think that that's who he i think he was trying to impress uh, folks like you coach combs you know and make sure that he got his message across and that you understood what he was saying so um but he definitely once he started cursing me out then i definitely felt like i was in the family <laughs> 
<laughs> well, he certainly has impressed me. I mean, I've always respected him um, as a coach, uh, but reading the book and understanding him better, of course, I, I'm 45 years old, so when his teams were at their best in the early 80s, I mean, I was a, wasn't even 10 yet. Um, my notions of him, my con- conceptions of him as a coach were that just brought on by, by the media. And so that might even been that he was an intimidating factor or you know, things of that nature. So it does, does have me question, you know, it, it, it changed when after reading the book, my whole conception of him and uh, everything that he did really did change. And I know he was very, you know, seemed to be fairly private with the media. Is that a fair statement? You know, I think he was private, period, but he definitely had a lot of people in the media that he liked and confided in, white and black. You know, he wasn't just friendly to the black reporters, although he did cultivate a whole generation of them. And, you know, let me, and I don't want to interrupt your train of thought here, uh, so we can come back to this point. But um, when Coach Thompson in the early 80s, when you were about 10 and I was a, you know, a young teenager, there were very few black people in the media at all. You know, and now, you know, I'm fortunate to uh, have a nice job with ESPN and and there's plenty of black people at all levels of the media. But back then there were hardly any. And he really sort of saw the first generation of of black people coming to the media. So this perception of him was created by an older. He was young, too. He was 30 years old when he got the job. And there was a lot of resentment among a lot of reporters a lot of white reporters, not all of them treated him poorly, which he makes clear in his book, but there was a lot of resentment. So um, he was private with the media. But if you were honest and open with him and treated him fairly, he would take your calls and call you back and definitely engage with you. You know, I, I know one person, there were so many important people in his life, especially women. And that was spoken about by many different women in the book. One that you know, struck me was Miss Mary Finland and the impact uh, she had on him and his program and groundbreaking nature, really. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, that's an important point that I'm glad you brought up because Mary Finland was a pioneer and a trailblazer in college athletics. Let's start with the fact that when Coach John Thompson was hired at Georgetown in 1972, he created a position to, that up until then didn't exist, academic coordinator. Now it's standard for every college team to have a staff member who works specifically with that team on academics. But back then it was unheard of. They might throw throw, uh, the athlete in a room with a tutor or something who was tutoring all kinds of other students. But coach said, my players are going to, they're not really going to want to reveal what they don't know to somebody they don't know. So her job was to educate, make sure that the players are educated. And also he said, to protect me from my competitive instincts because when I had to play a big game, all my reverence for education tended to fly out the window. So Mary Fenlon was an academic coordinator. She was a, um, a white high school teacher who he met at the high school he was working before he came to Georgetown. And over time, she, her influence grew over the program where she was basically number two in charge. Mary Fenlon was probably the first woman to sit on a division one college basketball bench for a men's team. And there were other women who came after after her. His head trainer was a woman as well when that was still unusual. So she really played a very important role in Georgetown athletics and in college sports in general. 
you know, another woman that was really important in his life seemed to be Miss Sametta Wallace Jackson. And which to me, it looked like it helped him in protecting his players from public scrutiny because of what she did to help protect him when he was younger. And that seemed to really rub off. Absolutely. So Samantha Wallace Jackson was his teacher in the sixth grade. And prior to that, he had been kicked out of his fifth grade uh, Catholic school because the nuns there said he was, quote unquote, retarded because he could not read. He literally did not know how to read in the fifth grade. And his mom, who was a trained educator, had tried to teach him and, and all his older siblings could read. But he had a learning disability. And Samantha Wallace Jackson recognized, oh, you're not stupid. You just need help. You know, and so I think that this is a tremendously important lesson for all coaches to learn and educators and parents and just everybody who cares about the well-being of young people. There's a lot of young folks who come across with a label on them or perception. And, and coach, I know you've seen them, too. Kids who've had a hard way to go in the classroom. And after a while, there people start telling them enough times that they're stupid or treating them that way and not even telling them. And they start to believe it. And then what happens, you know, and, and then it's a life wasted. Coach Thompson's life was almost one of those wasted. But he encountered this teacher who really saved him. And then as she was helping him, she also protected him, knowing that his feelings were sensitive. And so, so much of Coach Thompson's coaching philosophy, which he reveals in his book, is based on protecting these kids, protecting them from their feelings from being hurt, nurturing them you know, uh, really acting a lot of ways as, as a parent would and putting their interests ahead of his as, as trying to win. So, you know, I really encourage all the coaches who are listening to start thinking about yourselves. It's really easy to just go in hard on a kid, like kids screw up, man. We get disappointed and infuriated. You know, I have four kids, uh, and (laughs) I know the feeling well, you know, but they're my flesh and blood and I love them. And so I, I give them as many chances. They can never run out of chances with me. And, you know, I'm not saying that we need to be ultra lenient, but I really think that if our mission as people working with young folks in athletics is really to help them succeed in life, then we have to start thinking about protecting them and nurturing them. And yes, every time they screw up and make us tear our hair out and, and, and do things that everybody knows is crazy. You know, we got to we got to stick with them, man. That's sort of our job. That's what Coach Thompson learned from Samantha Wallace Jackson. You know, and I even liked how he talked about in the book where he might have held a player out of a game because of some academic reason, but he didn't want to let the public know that. He would, I guess, he even told the trainer, "Why don't you put a knee brace on him uh, <laughs> to to help the guy?" And I've seen that for him. My former. A college coach that I worked with at University of South Carolina, Eddie Fogler, there would be things to be done like that where, you know, you're still punishing them, but you're not telling the whole world exactly why you're punishing them or, you know, labeling them for any particular reason. And I, I think that that is tremendous. And that's where I would challenge people to read the book from the standpoint, what was your notions of Coach Thompson? What did you think about him? Read the book and then form your opinion about him. Yes, absolutely. I would encourage, there's a lot of people who have very strong feelings about him. A lot of people still dislike him. Uh, People who I talked to uh, in the course of writing this book, when they found out I was working with him, would um, share some negative and, and false opinions that were made without a full knowledge of the facts that were sort of skewed by 
let's be honest, racist media coverage of him. Mm-hmm. And so he definitely sets it straight in, in the book. And just, so, you know, he just explains why he did what he did. And it really comes across in a very authentic and genuine way. I mean, this was a man who cared about kids. You know, it's funny. I was doing a, I think I was doing a radio show in Washington the other day and a caller called in and he said, yeah, I just don't understand why Coach Thompson wouldn't recruit white players on his team. Why wouldn't he give some of these, you know, underprivileged white kids a chance, you know, to get a college education and a scholarship? And I said, sir, that's just flat wrong. He had plenty of white kids on his team. He recruited plenty of white kids. And then people started calling him a racist and it got harder to recruit white kids. And then opposing coaches would say, oh, Coach Thompson's only recruiting you as a young white kid because he wants a token. So people were lying about him and that made it harder for him to recruit players. Coach recruited the players he could get. So that's an example of one of the misperceptions that's dealt with in the book. Well, and he even mentions that he understands maybe why it was more difficult for him to get a, a white player uh, later on because of the, the the just false scrutiny that he got. And, you know, one thing I've dealt with as a basketball coach, and it, I know Coach Thompson talked about it, was when his teams played aggressive, trapping all over, using the whole floor, it was viewed as um, – I don't know, uh, intimidating, thuggish, uh, undisciplined, but it was very strategic. And I've even had people mention that sometimes in in my past about my own team. Like that is strategic in what we're trying to do. You know, our team may not look just like yours as far as, you know, running a certain set play or a set back defense, but it's all very strategic. And I've, I've wondered that why did people have that type of an opinion? And, you know, I think it's, it is rooted in some racism, whether conscious or unconscious. Yes, very much so. And, you know, so like I said before, I have uh, I have a son who's playing college basketball at Drexel University. I have a daughter who's in high school now. She's going to Boston University to play. And so I've been to a ton of games, AAU games, high school games. And we live over here in western Pennsylvania outside of Pittsburgh. And so I've been to many, many high school games. And, and you know, me playing myself. Uh, in high school, me sitting on the bench in college and, and getting to watch from all the way on the end of the bench with the guys who never place it. And there is a unspoken racial undercurrent whenever you have a team come in that's and there's a, a racial difference in two teams. Whenever you have a team that's mostly black and they're playing a team that's mostly white, even if nobody says it, there's a feeling there's something going on in the air. We all know it. Everybody who's involved with the game knows it. There's a perception that goes along with white players. There's a perception that goes along with black players. And um, it's a stereotype based on 400 years of American history and a lot of years of basketball history, too. And so that's really what, Coach, you know, you're still up against it, like you described. If you walk into certain games with your into certain gyms with your team, you know, there's there may be a certain stereotype that goes with your team before they've even seen them take a shot, you know? Absolutely. And, um, and so, you know, it's a fascinating part of America, man. And, and it's something that we're clearly still dealing with. And, um, Hey, I looked at the university of Iowa playing this year. They got a great team, a terrific team. I said, Holy smokes, they're starting five white guys. Like when have you seen that in the, in a top 20 basketball team recently? So these are some of the, the reasons why coach Thompson's book is so compelling because 
among other things, it's a historical document of the evolution of race in basketball. And he played in the NBA when they had racial quotas limiting the amount of black play. And he played when it was segregated, when he wasn't allowed to play in certain high school gyms. And he traces this whole thing up through that to him having an all black team winning the national championship. And it can really help to educate us on why we see things the way we do. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Jesse, because when I was reading your book and when I heard Coach Thompson discuss his time with the Celtics and how, you know, there might be 15, 12 to 15 players on a team, but he was really only competing for one of six or five or four, three roster spots on the particular team. Uh, I discussed this with my basketball team about uh, the quota system or what they had back in those days. And it, it blew their minds. It blew my mind when, you know, I, I'm, I'm sadly, I'm not surprised when I was reading it, but it was really surprising for me to share that with our, with my players. And they had no idea. It's like, what, that, that was a, a real thing in the NBA at some point in time. And that really surprised them. It is surprising. I was surprised too. And, you know, it made sense, but you just never think of that being a thing. We have this idea of sports as this, the ultimate meritocracy, right? That the best kid is going to get the, the best player is going to get the, the opportunity in the spot. But there's a lot of other things that go into it, you know, at the high school level. Um, you know, parents are always looking for a reason why their kid's not playing. I know you know about that. Coach, <laughs> yes. You know? Yes. I do. You know? um, and there, there's a lot that goes on. So to, to, to hear so vividly from coach in his book about an era where, the best players didn't always get that opportunity, you know, and where, I mean, it was amazing. He had a guy who he was in training camp with who was drafted the same year as him. This guy was the MVP of the NIT, and which at that time was the same as a national championship. Got cut, you know, uh, his name was Laverne Tart. Go Google him, Laverne, L-E-V-E-R-N Tart. Went to the ABA and averaged 24 a game, but wasn't good enough to be a substitute on the Celtics. You know, And it wasn't like Red Arback was a racist or anything. He just knew that there were certain constraints he was operating in. Red pushed the envelope farther than anybody. Red was the first coach to start five black players in the NBA. This is in the 1960-61 season. And it's just amazing how far we've come in that respect. But, and I'll finish this segment with this, even though we've gotten past the quotas and the stereotypes in terms of the players, what are we at? What situation is it now with coaches and front office people and general managers? Those are still predominantly white positions. And there are still many barriers at the college level and at the pro level. And I would argue even in some places at the high school level, to black coaches and administrators getting a, a fair shot. So we still got some work to do. I, I completely uh, agree with you on that. Um, I've, I've heard on one of your recent podcasts or you were a guest on that. So when I asked you the question, like who is the next coach Thompson to, to be vocal and, and speak out? And I, th- I think it caught you. Maybe, I don't know if off guard or you just, you didn't have an answer for it. And uh I think there just does seem to be a, a lack of, of influential black coaches. And the, have you thought any more about that answer? Who might be the next uh, influential black coach? I have. And, and I'm glad that you brought it up again, because now I can sort of push the ball forward a little bit. 
So um, on the first hand, I think that a lot of coaches are speaking out now. The question is if you're going to have the influence. And to have the influence, as Coach says in his book, you got to win. So, and the atmosphere today in college athletics and probably even high school is a lot different than there, then where um, you don't, you can't keep a job if you don't, you know, take your team to the tournament every year, <laughs> pretty much, you know, it's harder to keep a job. It's harder to have a few down years and keep, keep your job. Coach Thompson's son went to the final four in his third season. And then in his 12th season was fired after two losing seasons, you know, which to me, um, not just because he's Coach Thompson's son, that would be unfair for any coach anybody. who has proven any, right. Anybody. So it's going to be tough for another black coach to get to that point because they're going to have to get to a program and win consistently, win a national championship. That's sort of the bar that's been set and, and keep that job. And there's probably only in college basketball right now, you know, maybe six or 10 coaches, certainly no more than 10 who have tenure, right. Mm -hmm. Who are not going to get fired no matter what. Although they might get old and get sort of nudged aside, you know, into retirement. But, you know, there might be 10 guys who are safe from getting fired. Um, You know, the one that comes to mind, Shaka Smart, shoot, he's at University of Texas. They don't play around. Go ahead and have a few down seasons down there. See how quick you're up out of there. Oh, yeah. You know, he's doing great now, but let him miss the tournament three years in a row. They were talking about him preseason that he might. I mean, if he didn't have a good year this year, this could be his last year. He's on the hot seat. Yeah, he's on the hot seat. He's a crazy good coach. Right. Um, Leonard Hamilton down at Florida State, you know, see, but, you know, uh, it's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough. But someone else in that conversation, I believe, said that there's a lot of John Thompson's now at your level, at the high school level, at the college level, at at JUCOs, at, at all levels of college basketball, who are really have internalized and absorbed that message of education and are using basketball to help kids in life. And not that Coach Thompson was the first to do that because he will, says in his book he had other coaches who taught him that way. But he was probably, not probably, he was definitely the first coach to become famous for something bigger than just winning. And he had to win to get that influence. But once he did win, people understood, oh, it's not just about basketball now. This is the greater mission of coaches. And that's what he stood for. So he set that example for so many folks like yourself and, and, you know, shoot, middle school basketball, AAU basketball. So I think that there's the legacy of Coach Thompson is, unfortunately, it's not that big coach on a national level who's speaking out for black issues. But it is countless coaches throughout the basketball ecosystem who are doing things the right way and really helping kids. Are there any any parts of the book that maybe you encouraged him not to put in there or that you or you were worried like how they might be uh, taken by the public? <laughs> no, that was coach. You know, I'm I'm uh shoot, I'm a reporter man at heart and so I want it all in there. <laughs> oh, I I'm, I'm sure he <laughs> Every, did. You know, everything. But coach was very mindful that and he was right that his words carry a lot of weight. He didn't want to hurt anybody. And so I had to convince him to put a lot of things in there that he didn't was reluctant to maybe hurt somebody. For example, one of his favorite, favorite players of all time was Charles Smith. 
And Charles Smith um, was Big East MVP, uh, made the Celtics. And when he was playing for the Celtics, he was involved in a DUI type of situation. And it was a fatality. And a young lady lost her life. And he went to jail for that. And coach didn't want to mention it at all because he was afraid of how it would hurt Charles. But after a while, we sort of went back to it and it just felt like it would be an egregious omission. And he taught, he asked his players permission to put that, to put that in the book, you know? So um, there was definitely nothing that I encouraged him to keep out. I tried to get as much of it in there as I could. I got to imagine with all the great stories and everything that you put in there and knowing coach Thompson is, is about protecting their, his players. There's probably so many stories that you could have told that would have really illustrated how much he was helping his players, but really did not want to embarrass them whatsoever. You're right. And there were some that we just couldn't fit. I mean, there was just too many good ones, you know, Um, (laughs) there was a, there was an interesting story. Here's one that I haven't told anybody else, but uh, Dikembe Mutombo was about to get married. And he was in the NBA. He was making millions of dollars. And Coach Thompson was like, look, man, you need a prenup. And 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 the camera was like, OK, you know, yeah, I need a prenup. And then so they're having the, the wedding date arrives. It's in Washington, D.C. Hundreds of people are flying in from around the country for this wedding, probably from as far away as, as Africa. And the prenup has not been signed. <laughs> and so, and, and so uh, at the end of the day. All I have to say is the wedding did not happen. <laughs> mm. and, and, and coach said he advised the Kembe and Alonzo and Patrick to get out of town. And they went to Vegas where they were seen on television at a boxing match. Um, so I don't want to get into what coach said about how the hows and whys of how the, uh, the wedding did not happen. But that was one of the stories that I wish we could have fit into the book. You know, one of the stories that I, I really like, I, I've got to ask about it, and I've heard you talk about it on a podcast, is the water break uh, story. When uh <laughs> went out and got the, the best type of beer, uh, Heineken, I believe, is, was what it was. And and I think you even heard, this, uh, heard someone say on a podcast that he told them to drink it all. And uh, <laughs> talk about that just a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's an instructive uh, example of coaches – philosophy in dealing with young people. And I think we could all take heed to it. So he knew everything that his coach, that his players were doing, you know, let's just start with that. And I think as coaches, as parents, as educators, it behooves us to gather information on what's going on. You know, um, Hey, my kids and I are always in a game of cat and mouse as to who knows what about whom. And so, so he, he knew that his coaches were drinking. I'm sorry. He knew that his players were drinking more than they should be. He wasn't naive to the fact that guys in college are going to drink some beer. That's okay. But, you know, I guess they were getting a little too drunk. And he needed to sort of send them a message. And his, his previous warnings were not having the desired effect. He's like, look, guys, you guys need to chill out. You're doing too much. But they kept doing it. So he told one of his assistant coaches, hey, what's the best beer that's out there? He said, Heineken. He said, go get me some. He brought the Heineken back and he put it in the players' water bottles, but he didn't tell them that it was in there. <laughs> and, you know, every player has their number on a bottle. And so he and, and then they had practice. Now, originally, when I was was working on the book with him, I had sort of I think in my imagination, I got created this scenario. So originally I wrote. 
Coach ran him and ran him. He ran him for hours without giving him any water breaks <laughs> and then sent him over there and said, go ahead and drink up. And coach made it very clear to me. No, I didn't do anything like that. I just had our normal practice and it was time for the water break. I said, all right, everybody go drink up. And I just sat there and watched him. And the guys who had been drinking too much, we had put beer in their water bottles because everybody had their number on a bottle. You didn't just grab any old bottle. And coach said, I just sat there and watched him. And some of them tried to pretend that nothing was wrong. Some of them looked at me guilty. Some of them just spit it out. And he said, that's when I went all the way off and got up and started yelling and hollering. You know, you guys think that I'm stupid, huh? But he said, overall, the reason why he did it was, is that he was trying to send them a message in a different way. And he was trying to show them, look, I know what's going on. So you think you're being slick out here, sneaking around, drinking beer, getting too drunk? (laughs) I know exactly what's going on, and I'm crazier than you. I'm crazy enough to put beer in your water bottle. So imagine what else I might do if you keep drinking too much beer. (laughs) I love that story. It's really amazing. And it sort of goes back to another part with the media because Coach Thompson and another way he was ahead of his time. Like these days, you think you could just walk into uh, Coach Frank Martin's practice in South Carolina and just be like, oh, yeah, I'm here to watch practice. Hex, no. no. Nobody can come into practice, you know, nor should they be allowed to. Well, when Coach Thompson started doing that in the 70s and 80s, everybody was like, who does he think he is? Is he paranoid? Does he want too much control? What's he hiding? Well, he wasn't hiding anything. He was protecting his players from yes. people seeing their flaws, and he was protecting his ability to do his job with tricks like putting beer in the water bottle. Because God forbid that the media would get a hold of that. Then that would be a big scandal, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. So, you know, it's another way where he was ahead of his time and his genius coaching methods of, you know, sometimes you got to you got to shake our kids up, man. Sometimes you got to you got to really make them think and look over their shoulder in order to keep them on the right track. So that's what he was doing. That was a great story. It it is a great story and so many points to it. I got two last questions for you because I certainly value your time. If if you could ask Coach Thompson a question now or a follow-up question, what would you ask him or what, what would you to try to get from him? Yeah, you know, I really – I had two years with this man, privileged to, to be exposed to that level of intellect and conversation and education. It was an education for me too. So I feel like I was able to ask all the questions. But what I would ask him now would not be related to his book or his life. I would ask him, how does it feel for your book to be out and having this effect on folks like Coach John Combs in South Carolina and having this effect on the give and go AAU program in Nashville? I just got a a message from these guys and they sent me a picture of every player. I think it's like in their seventh and eighth grade team holding a copy of the book because they have a policy in that AU team that on every road trip, the players have to bring a book, not your phone, not your laptop, but a book. So, so I, I would ask coach, how do you feel to see your message getting out there to be resonating? Are you satisfied with, with the, the reception that your book is getting? And I hope his answer would be yes. Well, I know it was important to him and to you to you said somewhere that you have to get this right um, in in terms of talking this about this book. And I will say, I, 
if it's not right, I don't know what is. I, I think the message is certainly very powerful in many levels on many different things, whether you're in athletics, not in athletics. Um, but my last question would be, how would you and maybe Coach Thompson, lessons in this book, what advice would you give to, to high school coaches, whether it be a, a white basketball coach like B or a black basketball coach? What kind of lessons would you give high school coaches to you know, try to educate our young kids in today's society? Yeah. Well, I think that his messages for coaches are universal. And they all center around the importance of education. And we all have witnessed the overemphasis on basketball by a lot of young people, particularly among black kids, because it's perceived inaccurately as the only way out. It's perceived as um, this is my chance to make it. And Coach Thompson is adamant that we have to really let all of these young people know that you have a mind too, and you have to use that. And that is really your most powerful tool for helping yourself in life. And yeah, it's great to be good at ball and you might get a college scholarship. And if you're among the infinitesimally small percentage of guys who can make money playing basketball, then that's great too. But we have to instill in these young people at the earliest possible moment that basketball at its best is a tool to exercise in our minds and to educate ourselves and to figure out what contribution are we going to make outside of the basketball court. So I'm going to repeat myself one more time because I think it's so important to coach and such the main message of his book that basketball is an instrument of education. It's not the end goal. It's a means to an end. And that end is to help these young people make a contribution in life with their minds. Well, I think that's an outstanding place to end this podcast. And, and Jesse, I, I certainly appreciate one of the most valuable things that you can give give us is with your, is with your time and your knowledge and your experiences uh, in, in writing this book. And I, I think it's outstanding. Uh, I think it's a book that, um, you know, I, I think it's one of those must-reads. I, I try not to use those types of phrases often, but I think it is an outstanding book. And we certainly do appreciate all your time and, and everything you shared in, with us today. Well, Coach, thanks, man. I appreciate your time also, and I appreciate you, um, you know, getting the message and sharing the message with your audience down there and all the coaches and your coaching community. You know, um, I mean, I love the game of basketball, and I love the fact that it connects people across all manner of income and race and class and geography. And so um, just to be able to connect with you and your people down there, um, I appreciate it. I know Coach Thompson would appreciate you spreading his message to your folks. So thank you. You've been listening to the Balmetto State Podcast. We would love to connect with you on social media and hear what you think. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by going to at Balmetto State. Thank you for investing your time with us.